This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, January 8th, 2024. I'm Caleb Brown. There's a new drug making its way through the illicit drug sector, and the solutions that policymakers are likely to adopt in response will likely be just as counterproductive as those adopted for fentanyl. Cato's Jeff Singer explains. First, Jeff, a few definitions. What are the differences between opiates and opioids? Well, opiates are the natural derivative of the opium poppy. So they haven't been altered chemically in any way. You might want to think of it as like, you know, raw cane sugar versus processed sugar. So opiates, for example, are morphine and codeine. Codeine is, is, they both derive directly from the poppy. In fact, codeine, when it is ingested, it gets metabolized into two products. One is the active product, morphine, and the other isn't and is excreted. So you could even almost look at, at morphine as unprocessed, I mean, a codeine is unprocessed morphine. Opioids are these opiates that have been chemically modified to try to bring out certain features in them, either make them more powerful or shorter acting or longer acting. So you add a couple of molecules to the opiate, like oxycodone, uh, hydrocodone, or Vicodin, as it's often called, or hydromorphone, or Dilaudid, as it's called, or diacetyl morphine, which is brand name is heroin. So those are opioids. And then there are those are called semi-synthetic opioids because they're kind of part the natural and part additions. And then there's synthetic opioids, which are completely made in the laboratory without using any of the original plant derivative. And those will be like fentanyl or the opioid we're going to talk about today, nitazines, such as isotonitazine. So we should understand that opiates are a category, fentanyls are a category, and nitazines are a category. And of course, fentanyls and nitazines are entirely synthetic. Correct. Synthetic opioids. So what is, what is the risk as you see it? You've been sort of championing this problem, looming problem with nitazines for some time. What is different about nitazines as compared with fentanyl? Yeah, I've been talking about this for a while, and I think it's now people are starting to finally talk. Other people are talking about it as well. So the category of nitazines was actually originally developed by SIBA, the well-known uh, Swiss pharmaceutical company back in the 1950s. It's about r- roughly 20 times more potent than fentanyl. So it's even stronger than fentanyl. But like other opioids, it's reversible with the antidote naloxone, but you might need a bigger dose of it to reverse it because it's more powerful. It never was brought to the market. And there are different nitazines like isotonitazine, which users call ISO, is the most popular one. So starting in the beginning of this century, actually, uh, the World Health Organization was already re- reporting in the European Drug Monitoring Association, was reporting that non-medical users were starting to use these nitazines. They were showing up on, in, the, in the black market and in a drug scene. And then around 2019, it became kind of prominent in a, three or four European countries and was starting to be, be reported in the United States and Canada. And in fact, I reported uh, last year, in September 2022, over a year ago, now a year and a half ago, that the Tennessee Department of Health, which is one of the few Department of Health that was testing for nitazines in the toxicology studies on overdoses, was they, they noticed a fourfold increase in their detection of nitazine just between 2019 and 2021. So 
it may be much more prevalent in this country than we realize because most labs are not, it's not on their radar screen, so they're not checking for it. But I've argued, and I actually said this to members of the House Judiciary Committee subcommittee on crime and government surveillance last March 2023, that this is just the, the, the fentanyl crisis, which everybody talks about now, is just the latest uh, example of what drug policy people call the iron law of prohibition. And the iron law of prohibition, which is sort of a variant of the Alki and Allen effect, which is an, old, it's an economics technical term, is basically the harder the enforcement, the harder the drugs. Prohibition incentivizes the purveyors of whatever is prohibited to come up with more potent forms so they could be smuggled in more easily in smaller sizes. And, and then after you've taken all that risk, you could subdivide it into more units to sell. So that's why during alcohol prohibition, they weren't smuggling in beer and wine, they were smuggling in whiskey and, and hard stuff. That's, and, and so prohibition is why the most popular drug for non-medical users in the early part of this century was diverted prescription pain pills. That is to say, prescription pain pills that found their way into the black market. Then when law enforcement started cracking down on doctors prescribing pain pills by arresting them, and of course, this has caused a lot of patients who needed pain pills to suffer, the black market source dried up, so heroin replaced that, and we started seeing overdoses from heroin start to go up. And then around 2012, the dealers found if you add a little bit of fentanyl to the heroin, you can make it more potent, smuggle in smaller packets of heroin. And, and that started increasing until the point where during the pandemic, with border closures and supply chain problems, it was much harder to, to transport opium across borders, which you needed opium first to make the morphine and to get the morphine, which you then made into heroin. So the cartels just switched out to synthetic fentanyl, which you could make in a, you know, a basement laboratory without having to do all that stuff. And now that's being replaced, I think, by nitazine. So the point I've been making to lawmakers is, if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, you're just going to assure that there'll be something even more powerful coming down the pike. And you know, I can't tell you what that's going to be, but I said to them last year, I wouldn't be surprised if a couple of years from now we're talking about the nitazine crisis because that's even more powerful than, than fentanyl. Well, now we hear reports uh, from the British press just last week that they're starting to see a lot of nitazine. In fact, uh, they did random sampling of all corners of the UK and they're finding it in samples. It's also being mixed in with benzodiazepines like Xanax. People are you know, purchasing them on the black market. And just like we're seeing here with fentanyl, sometimes the benzodiazepine is laced with nitazine and it's causing overdose deaths. So the, you know, I hate to say I told you so because I don't want to be right about this, but it looks like that's what's happening. For opponents of drug prohibition broadly, what is the solution here. Certainly, nitazines, you don't know where it's coming from. You don't know the strength of the drug. People who are addicted to these drugs, they don't want to die. Right. And they're, they're, not, they're not irrational right. in, in that regard, but they are caught in this addiction, and usually the addiction wins. And they may not even be addicted. They may just be wanting to recreationally use the drug intermittently. Many people who are using these drugs are not necessarily addicted. And sometimes because of the perils of the black market, they're buying something, let's say, like in the UK, like what they think is Xanax, and turns out it's got nitazine in it because that's 
what happens when you have a black market. So I can tell you what lawmakers are. I, I predict what they're going to do next is take nitazine and add that to the list of controlled substances and make it schedule one. Because right now it's not on the list. It wasn't on anybody's radar. And of course, that's not going to do any better than cannabis being schedule one, which it is, and heroin being schedule one and all that. So that's just, again, that's political theater. And it's, it's also sticking your head in the sand. What ideally what they should do is what they did when alcohol prohibition was resulting in all of these deaths from people drinking adulterated alcohol, bootleg alcohol. And that is to end prohibition and federally make it legal. Leave it in our federalist system. You can leave it up to individual states what they want to do. Mississippi was the last state to end alcohol prohibition in 1966, I believe. So it doesn't mean that it's going to be legal everywhere, but it's going to be a state issue. And then you know, when I buy alcohol in a liquor store uh, and I see it says, let's say, 45% alcohol on the label, it never even enters my mind that maybe they're lying to me and it's 60% alcohol or maybe it's laced with fentanyl because it's legal. It's a legal regulated market. And that's the ideal solution. Realistically, I don't think anybody's ready to politically for that to happen yet. So what I would then suggest is the second best choice is at least stop putting all your efforts into, uh, stop making, incentivizing even more potent forms of drugs by doubling down on the law enforcement and arresting people and filling up our prisons with people who are convicted of victimless crimes. And, and then, of course, you're destroying their future too, because now they have felony convictions and they can't get jobs. And even in, if my, in my ideal situation, if, if all these drugs were made legal, we would need harm reduction, which we engage in when it comes to legal things. So that's where the effort should be placed. And right now, there are a lot of federal and state legal obstacles to organizations that want to engage in harm reduction. Harm reduction is basically just realistic. It's not endorsing your lifestyle choice. It's, it's accepting the fact that, look, you're going to choose to do what you're going to choose to do. Uh, let me do what I can to reduce the risks you're taking to your health and life by doing, making those choices. So for example, we doctors do that all the time when we put people on statin drugs or blood pressure pills or, you know, diabetes pills because their lifestyle choices have led them to become, you know, overweight and develop high blood pressure and high cholesterol, et cetera. That doesn't necessarily mean we, we're recommending continue in that behavior, but we're saying, well, let me see what I could do to make what you're doing less risky. And the same thing when it comes to uh, currently illicit drugs, you know, you, you have overdose prevention centers, which are very prominent for decades in Europe, where people can come inside off the street, test their drug to see if what they purchased is what it says it is, use a clean needle and syringe so they're not spreading bloodborne diseases like HIV or hepatitis. Somebody's around to rescue them if they overdose, that kind of thing. Uh, syringe services programs. Uh, we need to make it much easier for people to get access to addiction treatment. Uh, right now, these, the, the system we use to treat addiction with methadone is archaic and, and primitive. We, we treat people who have opioid addiction like as if they have leprosy. They can't go into a waiting room uh, and see a physician or a healthcare provider like all the other patients with other behavioral or physical problems do. They have to go to these government-designated centers and line up and take the drug in the presence of a staffer every morning because they can't be trusted, supposedly. Whereas in many countries, and I've written about this, primary care practitioners working with pharmacies 
could prescribe methadone for people with opioid use disorder. So we, these are the things uh, I would say to law, and I did say to lawmakers, if you can't bring yourself to end the war on drugs, at least remove the obstacles that right now are standing in the way of healthcare practitioners and harm reduction organizations to uh, engage, in, engage in harm reduction, to reduce the risks of people who are going to use these drugs no matter what you do. So make this a state issue, step one, right? Get the, get the feds yes. out of this. And we should understand some of the, some of the additional reasons why, which is uh, states that are, would be perfectly willing to engage in a, a broad effort at harm reduction and legalizing facilities that would uh, allow for people to come in from the cold, essentially, and be treated like human beings with a problem and uh, help them deal with that problem, the, the, the federal power looms large over the states that would otherwise be willing to engage in this kind of harm reduction. Yeah. In fact, uh, there's a law in the books, 21 USC, US Code, Section 856, colloquially called the Crack House Statute, was passed in the 1980s that says it's federally illegal to knowingly allow the use of a controlled substance, prohibited substance on your premises. So that means that overdose prevention centers, which used to be called safe consumption sites, are federally illegal in this country. Now, in November 30th, 2022, the city of New York allowed uh, a harm reduction organization to open up two overdose prevention centers. And within a year, they had reversed a thousand overdose deaths. The feds have yet to act, but they kind of sent out signals that they're not happy with this and they may take federal action. Uh, a couple of other states, Rhode Island, Minnesota, have legalized overdose prevention centers in their states. But again, this is doing this at your own risk because the feds can come in and, and bust it. So that's one thing that, that Congress can do is, is repeal the crackout statute. On the state level, every state except Alaska had instituted uh, drug paraphernalia laws, which the DEA encouraged them to do. Uh, Alaska, for some reason, never did. And Minnesota just repealed them last year, which is great news. But the drug paraphernalia laws make it illegal, for example, to hand out uh, test strips to test to see if what you thought was Xanax might have fentanyl in it. Or, and now we hear about this new additive, xylazine, which is a veterinary tranquilizer that's been adding, it's been added a lot now to fentanyl. Again, the, the iron law of prohibition is making it more potent. And there are xylazine test strips that could test for that. But uh, in some states, if you, if you hand out a test strip to somebody who you know is using drugs, then you could get arrested for distributing illegal drug paraphernalia. So uh, we got to get rid of the drug paraphernalia laws altogether, in my opinion. But at, at a very minimum, at least repeal the parts that prevent you from handing out testing equipment. Jeff Singer is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening.